Good morning, Trinity. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here. If you're recently moved to Charlottesville, I want to especially uh, offer you in a greeting. We're so glad that you are here. I'd love to meet you at her church in the foyer right back out there. Now, we're in the midst of a sermon series entitled The Gospel According to the Psalms. And the Psalms are the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New. Because every time Jesus' apostles were trying to describe who Jesus was or what he did, they would go to the Psalms and say, this is, this is who Jesus was. And so this July, we're preaching through Psalms that are quoted in the New Testament. This is one of my favorite topics. How is the Old Testament used in the New? Because it shows you what the story of God is, what he was up to. And so today is Psalm 8. Please, if you have a Bible, turn there to Psalm chapter 8, or you can look on in your bulletin. Psalm 8 is quoted in Hebrews 2, which is also in your bulletin, but we'll save that reading for later in the sermon. So Psalm 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, and yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? O Lord, we do acknowledge you've heard our words this morning that you are majestic and so we pray for nothing less in this sermon that we would see your majesty even clearer that you would be high and lifted up oh lord may these words in my mouth and this meditation in my heart be pleasing in your sight oh lord my rock and my redeemer amen there's probably no educator more responsible for the modern American university than Charles Eliot. Eliot transformed Harvard College into the premier research university as president in the decades after the Civil War. Eliot led Harvard in pioneering the elective system and in establishing graduate education. Before, America didn't have that. In the midst of the many expansions, Harvard was building a new building to house the philosophy department. It was to be entitled Emerson Hall, named after Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great American philosopher and Harvard alum. As plans proceeded for Emerson Hall, Eliot asked a committee of faculty, including the preeminent philosopher William James, what inscription should go above the door. James and company recommended the Greek philosopher Protagoras, his quote, Man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. 
You see, it was fitting for the, for the age. This was the first great era of American secularization. A whole generation of American intellectuals had seen the church split over slavery, all referencing their Bible to defend their position. As they lost faith. They lost faith in the church and the Bible. And the universities were formed, turning away from the Lord. Man is the measure of all things. You can imagine James' surprise then when Eliot chose another line to Don Emerson. Psalm 8, 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And there's a proverbial fork in the road, philosophical fork in the road between those two sayings, isn't there? What is man that you are mindful of him? It's a question to God saying, if we're going to know anything about who we are, we need to begin asking the one who made us. There's a, a massive chasm between that and man is the measure of all things. And that man stands on his own. It's actually more fitting inscription, probably given the direction of Harvard University. <laughs> but we face considerable cultural confusion regarding the question that Psalm 8 asks, what is man? Critics like Marx to Foucault claim the question itself is absurd. You cannot define humanity. And any definition is a power play by the oppressor. And friends, the, the academy has largely agreed, emphasizing human difference and subjectivity. The academy withholds judgment on the nature of humanity, but it spends incredible insight to money on questions of race and gender and sexuality. You see, if man is the measure of all things, then what we're left with is radical subjectivity. All we have is, who do I think I am? Each of us should determine what is true of his or her humanity, and that's exactly what has happened. It's called expressive individualism, and it permeates our culture. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy articulated this exquisitely. He says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. We allegedly, according to Kennedy, had the right to define the mystery of human life, each one of us, for our own. It's not far from Protagoras to Anthony Kennedy. But what if there are profound answers to the question, what is man? What does it mean to be human? What if each generation doesn't need to invent new answers to that perennial question? Instead, the scriptures speak clearly and authoritatively about our humanity, affirming both our humility and our glory. And so we're going to look at three answers that Psalm gives us to this question, what is man? And then we'll end with Hebrews 2. That's four points, three in Psalm 8 and then Hebrews. So first point, what is man? To be human is to praise glory, to praise glory for you note takers. We are most human, we are praising glory. And we see this in verses 1 and 9. The psalm begins and ends with this burst of praise. We've sung it several times today. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
The psalm begins and ends with worship. And so before we begin, we need to know that the question, what is man, it needs to be bookended by the praise of God's great majesty over all the earth. The term homo sapien, the technical scientific term for humanity, was first penned by Carl Linnaeus, an 18th century Swedish taxonomist. He created the modern version of having the genus and species, those two words of classification. And he was an enlightenment figure. So it makes sense that he named humanity for its capacity to know. Sapien, it means knowledge, wisdom. We are knowing creatures. But what if there is something deeper, more basic to our nature than mere knowing? And this, the Christian Bible says there is. It says that we are first and foremost worshiping creatures. The more fitting classification is not homo sapien, but homo adorans, the adoring creature, the adoring man, the worshiping man. David Foster Wallace, this brilliant creative writer, he, author, he authored uh, the book Infinite Jest, which no one has actually read the whole thing. He, he gave the commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005. Now, Wallace was not a confessing Christian. But listen to how he affirms this homo adorans, the fact that we're worshiping creatures. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what? To worship. Do you hear that? What is man? Man is a being that worships, that values, that glorifies, that praises. And we, our worship is attracted to those things that we find most glorious. We're glory seekers. Every one of you is. Though we differ in what we might find worthy of glory. Some find glory in wine. Others in the hoffiest IPAs. And still others are still in Baptist. That was a joke. They don't drink. <laughs> Some find glory in Bach. Others in the Beach Boys. Others in Bon Iver. Right? Some find glory in the Cavaliers. A minority of you find glory in the Hokies. <laughs> Family, money, sex, power. Like These are the things that we love to glory, that we love to praise. But there is a surpassing glory that we were made to praise. A glory that is the source and fountain of every inferior glory. And the psalm affirms that it is the Lord whose majesty is most worth praising. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David employs a universal, a universal human experience of glory in verse 3, he says, Look up at the night sky, the rich dark blue hue punctured by thousands of piercing white stars, and the beaming white of the moon. It's glorious. And we know now even more just how majestic, how expansive the universe is. And the rest of verse 1 says, Hey, you know how big the universe is? God's glory is set even above that. The biggest thing that we can even comprehend, God's glory is more, broader, bigger, expansive. 
Why does the earth revolve around the sun? Because it has to. Because of the magnitude of the sun, the, the gravity and the glory that pulls us in. And it's our orbit around the sun that gives us life. If we didn't, we would die. And friends, the same is true of God. You were meant to praise him. If you're anything like me, I really like to obsess. And when I obsess, I like to imagine that I'm a get a hamster in my, in my brain that just gets on a wheel and just like starts running, you know, not going anywhere. But one of the most beautiful things, the points in my life when I'm most human is when I realize, when I get off that hamster wheel and realize that life is not about me. It's about God. I need to get off that hamster wheel and start revolving around the Lord. To be human is to praise glory. Second point, to be human is to live humbly. To live humbly. To be human is to praise glory and to live humbly. The rest of the psalm speaks of our humanity in two separate points. It's going to talk about first humility and then the honor and glory. So let's take the humbling, which we see in verses 2 through 4. Verse 1 is God's glory above the heavens. Verse 2 is baby talk. You have the ESV in your bulletin, but I'm going to read the NIV. Listen to how the NIV translates verse 2. It says, Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. It's this huge dichotomy, this contrast. The glory of God, the babble of a child. And yet the point is, is that God is so glorious that he doesn't need help. That he can actually conquer his foes through the words, the praise of the children. And so often in the scriptures, it is the children that get God. They are the ones who are most humble. And when you think about it, you cannot be more humble than a child. They need to be fed. They are completely dependent on their mother and father. When they make a mess of themselves, they need someone to clean them up. A baby horse can walk within an hour of being born. Wouldn't that be great if our children could like walk in an hour and like feed themselves? We are deeply, deeply humble creatures. And the Psalms, it ups the ante in verse 3. Remember, he looks at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. He's looking at the stars and the moon. He's like, God's fingers can do that. It's like Legos to God. It's like Legos. What is man that you are mindful of him? We're nothing compared to the magnitude of the moon, the stars. In 1977, NASA launched the Voyager 1 spacecraft. 1977. 13 years later, it reached the outer limits of our solar system, 3.7 billion miles from the sun. And NASA commanded it. It was about to lose contact because it could not go that far. NASA commanded it to look back at the Earth to snap a picture. And that picture of the Earth is called the pale blue dot, a fitting title. Because all it is is basically this like sea of blue, and you can barely see this pixel of a pale blue dot, which is the earth. Like, that's what we live on. 
That's who we, that's, that's who we are. And friends, this earth is expansive. It's huge. When I go to California, it takes far too long to fly there. And we are but a dot on this earth. We are a pale dot on a pale blue dot. That is who we are as humans. And essential to becoming human is that we recognize just how minuscule and insignificant and powerless we truly are. Every Pixar movie and best-selling children's book these days tells me and my kids that if I just believe in myself, that I can be anything or do anything I want. Let me just tell you as a disabled man, that's a lie. <laughs> I wanted to play for the Dallas Cowboys when I was a kid. Maybe I just didn't believe enough. But to be human, friends, is to be profoundly limited and powerless, to be weak. And to recognize our limits is actually to live in to our humanity. The people that I know that can admit their weakness, who are even content in their weakness, they're the most human, happy, peaceful people. There's no pretension. There's no pretending. Living into, recognizing our limits, living into those limits. For example, example, to be human is not to be anxious about tomorrow. Like, what do you know about tomorrow? You don't, because you're human. And the more that you make peace with that and trust the Lord, the more human you become. The humbling nature of our humanity would be terrifying if there was not a God who cares for us in our powerlessness. And we see this. This is the good news. Look at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Remember that God that was above all the, the heavens, his glory. He is the one who cares for you. He thinks of you. He's mindful of you. I'll just encourage you just to, to change that, to meditate. Change verse 4 and to put it in the first person. Who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you care for me? Friends, to be human is to think humbly. That leads us to our third point. To be human is to rule honorably. To rule honorably. If verses 2 through 4 speak of the, hu the humility, verses 5 through 8 highlight the glory. In verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And what is this glory? What does it mean to be made a little lower than the heavenly beings? It's this reference to the Imago Dei, the image of God, that we as people, there is a special component about us, who we are. We are made in the image of God. And we're glorious because we're made in the image of a glorious one. And verse 6 fills out this vocation the Lord has given us, what it means to be his image. It says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. What is your purpose as a human? It's to rule over God's works. God is the ruler, and those made in his image will be rulers just like he was. Except, except that we are to rule honorably because we are not the top ruler. We are servants of the ruler. We are vice regents or stewards for the Lord. We are accountable. 
Our rulership is always under God's rule. And what does it mean to rule honorably over creation? I think it is most basic. It means to promote the law of God and those spheres the Lord has entrusted to you, your household, your family, your friendships. And we must be careful to resist the categories of our day when we speak of rule and dominion. You see, our culture is obsessed with power relationships. Who has power over whom? Who does not have power? And friends, listen to me here. The church must think unrelentingly biblical about these things and not give in to the slogans of the cultural left or right. The scriptures acknowledge that some people, some categories of people are indeed powerless. And he calls God's people to care and protect them. But at the same time, every human, by virtue of being human, has agency. No matter how limited that agency might be. And more importantly, is accountable to God. The emphasis of the scriptures is always to be faithful with what little agency we have. And the limits of our agency are always an invitation to prayer and trust in the Lord whose agency is unlimited. And then the scriptures, the most important sphere of rule, indeed the priority, is yourself. It's yourself. Those who are most human are the self-controlled. You might remember Esau and Jacob from um, Sunday school way back. Genesis calls Esau a man of the field. A man of the field. And this is not a compliment to Esau. This is not a Wendell Berry farmer here. Um, it, it means, because that phrase of the field is usually ascribed to beasts of the field. And if you'll remember, Esau is hairy. He also lacks self-control. He's so hungry that he gives up his birthright in this impulsive decision. In other words, Esau is not living a human life. He's less than human. He's not living with self-control and virtue. And that's, that's what being human is. It's living in, with self-control under the lordship of God. You've perhaps heard that 50% of leadership needs to be spent on yourself. Like, you need to lead yourself. Fathers and mothers, you cannot rule your children if you're not ruling yourself with honor. Friends, this is what it means to be human. To praise glory, to live humbly, and to rule honorably. And every bit of that is meant to be lived before God. If we are the Imago Dei, if we are the image of God, then we must live constantly before His presence. That's why the psalmist begins and ends his meditation on the Lord. Now, finally, and this is my last point, with two bonus subpoints. Okay? <laughs> two bonus subpoints. <laughs> Tricky. Tricky. How does Hebrews 2 answer the question, what is man? So let me give you some quick context. The book of Hebrews, right out of the gate, declares that Jesus is the divine Son of God who is supreme over all. And he spent the whole chapter 1 and up to where we're about to read saying, 
you know angels? You know how terrifying angels are that they, people bow to them every time they see them? Like, Jesus is way more supreme than them. And then he gets to our passage, what's listed in your bulletin. So look down in your bulletin. Look at Hebrews 2.5. For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but what we do see is him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Pause there. Pause there. What is Hebrews saying? It's just quoted Psalm 8. And it says, this is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. He is the man. He is the son of man, which is, by the way, the title that Jesus used most for himself. And he indeed was made for a little while lower than the angels. God has experienced the humility of being a human. And because of his death and resurrection, it says, God the Father has crowned him, giving him the name that is above every name. He is a Lord whose name is majestic in all the earth. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why the Gospels begin, the Synoptic Gospels begin, where Jesus declaring the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Wasn't God always ruling? The Old Testament seems to say so. So what's different about Jesus? Why is Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven? It's because the Lord had always, always intended that humans rule the earth. And so when the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of heaven comes, what that means is that Jesus is coming and restoring the rightful rule of humans over the kingdom of God. That's what's happening in the Gospels. And even though Harvard's Charles Eliot chose Psalm 8-4, he fundamentally misunderstood its meaning. You see, Charles Eliot was a Unitarian. He did not believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. Psalm 8 could not have been about Jesus for him. But that's the whole point of this psalm according to Hebrews and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. They say, you know who Psalm 8 is about? It's about Jesus Christ. He is what it means to be human. Do you want to be truly human? Then look at him. Look at his life. His life is not just a way of being human. It is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the uniqueness of Christianity. You see, many religions recognize that there is something terribly wrong with our humanity, but none declare that God himself came down to do something about it. Who are, what is man? It's Jesus. Now here's our two, two final bonus points. We learn two more essential facts about being human in the next lines of Hebrews. Look back at verse 9, the last section of verse 9. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. To be human is to be in need of God's grace. 
That's what it means to be human. You see, we live less than human lives so often. In fact, that is our default. Remember, to be human is to praise the glory of God. But the scriptures say that we fall short of the glory of God. That's what sin is and does. And to fall short of God's glory is actually to fall short of our humanity, which is the image of God. You see, we live in a Copernican universe where the glory of God is rightly at the center of the universe. But every one of us have foolishly pretend that we live in a Ptolemaic universe in which everyone is revolving around me. Right? You're just sub-characters and I'm the main character. And I'm your sub-character, right? We don't live according to our humanity. But when we actually acknowledge that, friends, we are confessing that we need God's grace. We are a mess. We are all promiscuous glory seekers, narcissistic egoists. And we should not be trusted to have dominion over a houseplant. Like we can't control ourselves. We, can't, we don't even rule over ourselves with honor. But when we confess this in detail... When we confess to God who we truly are, we're actually becoming truly human. When you repent, it's one of the most beautiful and human acts that you can do. Because it's recognizing who you truly are and who God truly is. And if, if to be human is to need grace, then to be God is to give grace. It's who he is. Finally, bonus point two. To be a renewed human is to be destined for glory. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you belong to his humanity, he recreates you by his spirit. And you are renewed. It's not in your bulletin, but Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, would bring many sons to glory. That's the glorious human of all humans. Jesus is bringing all those who trust in him into the glory they were created for. Here's my last illustration. My little girl is really into princesses right now. She loves putting on princess dresses and singing about princesses. And the other night in our Bible reading, we read about Jesus going to heaven and sitting on the throne. For he is the king over all things, right? I told her that if she followed King Jesus, she would indeed be a princess. And she was thrilled. There's a gospel for humanity. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we do confess to you that we have fallen short of our humanity because we've fallen short of your glory. Oh, Lord, but we thank you that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. We thank you that you are mindful of us, that you care for us. Oh, Lord. Would you change us? Would you make us more human, more self-controlled, more humble, and more oriented to your glory, O oh Lord? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.